You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. The reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It's located on page 1043 in the Bible at your seat. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue our series that we started three weeks ago called This I Believe, we come to this text, short text, and what we're doing here is we're going all over this one chapter in Colossians and we're exploring um, what it is that Paul is affirming in the Colossians that they believe and what it is that he's believing, and we are using this sort of as a, a guide for us, a template for us to confess as a church people This is what I believe. Two weeks ago, we began with this, I believe, in a majestic Savior King. We talked about and we looked at the part of chapter one where it talks about how Christ is before all things and he is for all things and and by him all things hold together. And I don't know if you noticed this week, but the, the scientific world sort of exploded in joy and emotion this week whenever they they saw a picture of a black hole. Now they always knew there was the black hole that was out there, but this is the first time that that like they actually saw it. And the reality is you don't see the hole, right? You see the lights and the lighting around the hole. And so this week, I mean, all across um, the chat rooms and stuff, there's this celebration of what this means. And, and so likewise, it means a lot of times people can be afraid and, and scared of what a black hole means for the universe. And we confess as a church, we're not worried about that. We believe, and what we said that week is that He has created all things, and black holes, stars, everything is held by Him. We confess that that week, and then we looked at last week, this I believe, not just in the Jesus Christ being the Creator, Savior, King, but we believe in God the Father who wants us. And we looked at a text in Colossians where it describes all that He has done to pursue you, to save you, to redeem you, that He sent His own Son, you know, the majestic Creator King, He sent Him to redeem us. And we confess joyfully this, I believe, in a majestic Savior King and a God who wants me. Today, we come to this. We have a lot to talk about today. Today, we come to this text. This, I believe, in the power of the gospel. I want to pray as we get into this. Oh God, teach us something. Teach us to hold to the gospel, Lord, and remind us and, and let it let the gospel get a hold of us. May our whole identity be wrapped up in what it means to be saved. 
Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to these verses where Paul is introducing himself to the readers. And he's introducing to the readers what he knows about the readers, the Colossian people. Paul writes to these people, and he's writing from jail. He's locked up. He's in prison. And he's reaching out to the church that meets in Colossae. Colossae was located in a Roman province that is now to be known in the area of Turkey. Kind of picture that in your head. The city was once a great, great city, a thriving city, when King Xerxes from Persia conquered the area and all of the trade routes went through Colossae. I mean, it used to be a thriving city, but when it became known as a Roman province, there were other cities that grew up like Laodicea, and the trade routes began to bypass Colossae and go through Laodicea. And so in Paul's day, Colossae was a a smaller city that began to get overshadowed by its rising neighbors. There were not many people who acknowledged Colossae at this time when Paul wrote this letter. There was not much thought of or care for those in Colossae. Now, Colossae is an interesting town, but it wasn't something that people wrote about or talked about because most of it went through other cities. I felt like this a little bit when I went to college. I got tired of trying to defend the town that I grew up in. Most of what people knew about the city of Pasadena was that it was polluted or it was known for the biggest cowboy bar in the world. Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, you know, okay. Gillies was actually, uh, like the property of Gillies bumped right up to my elementary school. Um, Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. But when I went off to college, I remember telling people, I'm from Pasadena, and and I would try to defend, it's not always polluted, we're not just known for Gillies. And finally, I just started saying, you know what, I'm I'm from Southeast Houston. It's just easier, right? This is probably what people in Colossae felt. It wasn't a popular place, and people would not have marked it on their maps or in their GPS. It's kind of out of the way. It was mostly a Gentile province, um, but there was a heavy Jewish influence there. But it was mostly smaller and unpopular, and it was to these people that Paul writes this letter. Why is that important? It's important for us to know that, and at least to me when I was reading through this, thinking about this, because we should be stunned just a little bit that Paul is writing what he's writing to these people. It's, it's how he begins this letter. It's what he's saying when he begins this letter. He starts by saying, we have noticed you, Colossians. He begins by acknowledging what he has seen and heard and how the message of Christ, the story of God's grace applied to them and how it has transformed them, how it has become known. That should astound us that he's writing to these, this out-of-the-way area. Now, Colossae was bigger than Florence. But picture somebody from Austin saying, yeah, I hear what's going on in Florence. I'm writing to you, Florence. No offense to Florence. 
people there, but this is kind of the feeling here. Look with me in verse 4. Paul says, We have heard. By we, he most likely means both he and Timothy and those close associates that are with him. Remember, he's in jail. He could be talking about me and Timothy and all of those that are locked up with me right now. There's a group of us here that have heard about you. Picture that. What was it that they heard about these people in a place like Colossae? He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for the saints. How does one hear about the faith that some have in Christ Jesus and how do they hear about some radical love for other people? How does a famous missionary like Paul, who's so busy, always going, always tracking, hear from a jail cell or within the jail cell or maybe it happened before he entered the jail cell how does he hear about people who might be considered forgotten in a place like Colossae well just some obvious things we should point out these people as Paul says are well he infers that they're known for their faith and their love remember This is not 2019. There is no Twitter world. There's no Instagram network. There's no Facebook friendships to spread the news and invite the masses to like their story. Word traveled by word. (laughs) It traveled through people. Personal contact. That's how it was communicated. It took great efforts to share whatever's going on in a town. One would have to have left Colossae with some sort of story, some sort of testimony, and they would travel most likely by foot or donkey or cart or something like that across dirt roads into other towns, and then as they were going, they would be talking about what's happening in that place that they just came from. Fresh on their mouths would be the stories of love, stories of people addicted to the gospel. I know when I traveled with my family from Red River, New Mexico to Salado in a nice, comfortable truck with air conditioning, good lighting, good engine, good tires on a freeway that says I could drive up to 75 miles an hour most of the way, passing through cities, stopping whenever I needed to stop, and just doing all that in one day. When I got home, I didn't want to talk to people for like two days. I was tired. I was mentally tired. Imagine traveling the way they traveled And so fresh was the conversation that they were referring back to what they encountered. Something happened. That means that something so very real and enticing would cause the travelers, would cause those to to go and would cause them to tell and would cause them to remember and would cause them, think about this, to risk sharing the news Paul's writing from jail for doing the very thing that the other people were doing that told him what was happening in Colossae. They were sharing the information. It's illegal, mostly. 
The other obvious thing that this means is there must have been some obvious markers, some signs, some testimonies that revealed these people's faith, that revealed their love, so much so that it would have caused some of the traveling disciples to hear about it and wonder. I wonder what those signs were. I wonder what the markers were. What was happening in the community? Guess what? Today, this morning, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you what I think or what I can research. Because here's why. I want you to go into your community groups this week, and I want you to ask that question. What do you think are some good markers, some good things that would identify us as Christians? So much so that when people leave our group, leave our church, that they go and tell people about that things, those things what they experienced, what kind of love expression, radical love was so contagious that it caused people as they traveled, as they went wearily through the towns and villages to pass on, you don't know what's happening. And these people, Colossae? Yeah, no, you mean Laodicea. No, Colossae, you don't get it. No, you mean Laodicea. No, I'm telling you, there's something real there. I'm marked. I'm never the same because of my experience there. Their faith in this Christ Jesus was unusual. These messages, these markers, these signs that were seen in the Colossian church must have been so obvious, so clear for Paul to say to them, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and we have heard of the love that you have for all the saints. That is important for us today too. There's more we can even ask and wonder about this. Paul is not saying to them that they are known for being a nice community. He's not saying, hey, y'all have some sweet families there. I hear there's some up and coming things there in Colossae. I hear some good stuff. I hear there's some good attendance there at y'all's gatherings. All the events that I hear that y'all are doing, I'm seeing it on what, okay, not the World Wide Web, but I'm, I, I can hear these things, and man, I, I hear some really good No, He is saying that they are known for their love for all the saints, their faith. What Paul is saying is that there's something bigger, there's something grander, that's happening there amongst you. Your whole lifestyle has been changed. You're driven by something different than other cities are driven by. These people have become famous now for what they confess that they believe. And they're confessing it and they're living it out. They are famous and they're known for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saved people. And so we must ask, where does this kind of faith come from? Where does this kind of love come from? What is the source of this radical, outward-focused, mark-making faith and love? I mean, where's the origin of this? Paul says, for we have heard of your faith, In Christ Jesus, and the love you have for the saints, verse 5, because, 
of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Just think about that. You have this hope in something that is to come that is radically altering the way you love people now. You are so heavenly minded, you are doing really good earthly stuff. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word. Here it is. The truth. The gospel. Have you ever hoped for anything so grand and so big that it altered the way you lived your life? Something beyond you, something that's promised to you, that it affects your actions today? You might be promised by your boss, okay, if you, there, there's this raise out there or there's this bonus or this week off that, that the person who achieves this will get and all of a sudden, what happens? It affects your day. You get there early, you get to work, you put away solitaire, whatever it is you got to do, you're going to start doing those things because you're driven by the promise of the one who's holding out this carrot of this promise of a job or whatever. At Salado High School, I don't know if every high school does this, I think this is kind of neat I guess but they are, they reward perfect attendance and they tell you if you if your student has perfect attendance throughout the year at the end of the year you get to miss out or you get to choose to forego the finals you don't have to take finals you think that changes behavior I know in my home, when our kids have been sick or they've been up the late night before because they've traveled or something, the idea comes to them, the idea that comes to their dad, I have to confess, is, well, let's just sleep in. It's just, a, you know, public, you can miss those first few classes. And what happens with students that are 15 and 17 is, no, 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 I got to get to school. It's not because they want to be in school, it's because they have this promise at the end waiting for them. The Colossians are famous for their faith and their love because they have this hope of what is to come to them and they have this something in them that they've hanged onto or are hanging onto that's driving them. What is that? We see that Paul says it's come to them in a word. It's come to them in the word of truth. It is the gospel. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. What Paul is basically saying, you have this faith, you have this love, and I know what it's, where it's coming from. It's coming because y'all are driven by the gospel. It's called the gospel. Here's the way Paul writes to the Corinthians. Here's what we mean by the gospel. Here's what the gospel means. It is simply the good news about Jesus. And here's the way he described it to the Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture's. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If you heard that or read along with me on that and you're like, well, that's it. Then you're not driven by the gospel. It bores you. 
You're used to it. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. Really? He died for my sins and He was buried. He paid the price. The price was death. The death was seen and that they actually buried Him. And, and oh, by the way, what makes it good is that He conquered death. He rose again three days later. This is the message that fulfills all the promises of God in the Old Testament. All the promises of Jesus and the apostles. That Christ died and He didn't just die just to die. He died to redeem us for our sins. And, and He was buried and He did rise and He did win our soul in the process. And it was this message that changed everything for them. And now the Colossians were known for the hope that they had in this truth. They became driven by it. They, it, they became what we call gospel-focused, gospel-centered people. And I want to just explain a little bit what gospel-centered people are not. What, is, what does it mean? What is gospel-centeredness not? Does that make sense? Gospel, to be gospel-centered means we are not man-centered. The simple way to put that, there is no man who has ever lived that is bigger, that drives us, that influences us, that marks us, that shapes us, that pushes us, that scares us. There's no man that's ever been created that does all that things for us more so than the gospel. There's no politician. There is no boss. There's no person in our family. There's no pastor, good or bad. To be gospel-centered means we are not man-centered. To be gospel-centered means we are not about church busy work. It means we don't get our value and our hope and our joy by making sure we put our stars by our name on the calendar of our attendance or that we measure who's faithful and who's not by how much we see them in the things we want to see them at. It's not about busy work. To be gospel-centered is to not be selfish means, well, I've got to have it my way or I won't be with these people. Does that sound like a radical love for the saints? If you have to have it your way? That's not gospel-centered to say, I've got to do it my way. We've got to have it at my time. We've got to do it, sing these songs. We've got to, you know, it's no. To be gospel-centered is to be driven by the gospel and to be loving to the saints. To be gospel-centered means we are not lifeless, means we have hope, we have joy. We might have times of depression and be downcast and, and real circumstances are, are weighing in on us, but we're not lifeless. We're getting up and we're going after it because there's this hope we have. And what we see in verse 6, and we'll look at it a little bit later, to be gospel sinners means we are not powerless. A gospel-centered person is driven by passion about the good news of Christ. The Colossians, who might have once been forgotten, not known, are now becoming known for their hope that is fueling everything that they're doing. 
So here's a reality for us. Let's just be honest. Our passions drive us, right? What we're passionate about drives us. Let's, let's be honest. Our passions drive us. Our passions define us. You might want to write that down. Put it on your mirror or to have your kids tell it to you every time you're passionate about something. Anyway, don't do that. That would be divisive in your family. Our passions drive us. Our passions define us. Paul from prison is saying, I know what y'all are passionate about. I know. What is your family known for? I don't know this to be true, but most of the time I talk to Sam and he talks about his family. There's, there's a lot of music ability. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of artistic. There's a lot of um, just sort of awareness of how to, how to influence others and talk to people. And, it, and not everybody in their family probably has this sort of artistic flavor, but it sure seems like to me that that's something that they're passionate about and they like to do. And, and so I've told people before when I've come new to the community and they ask who we are and what we're doing, I usually tell people, well, we are a basketball family. You may have heard me say that before. What do I mean when I say that? Well, it means that you could watch our family and probably over a span of just a month learn that family likes basketball. Basketball has influenced their lives and they, and what our prayer is, is that they are using basketball to engage others and influence the community. Here's something just to kind of give you an awareness of us, how we are defined and how our passions dictate decisions in our life when we're passionate about something. When we're passionate about something and we're driven by something, different identities within that and gifts begin to show. So if we're a basketball family, you can see it in our family. I'm known as sort of the, the coach, the inspirer, the goal setter. Here's where we're going. Here's what we're doing. All that kind of stuff. I was once a player. I liked to play. I had a lot of joy when I played. I have a lot of sadness. I can't play anymore. All that kind of stuff. JC, if you get to know our daughter, I usually don't talk about my family sermons, but I'm going to beat this illustration to death. Um, J.C.'s known as the spot-up shooter, the tenacious, tough-as-nails defender, strong rebounder. Everybody on her team knows her that way. They're like, oh, man, she's got this grit. Don't let her box you out, you know, that kind of thing. Just this gritty warrior mentality. Josh, known as our playmaker, creator, vision guy, scores when he needs to, but mostly likes to manage the game for the team. We come to Kelly. In our family, she's known as the bucket maker facetiously but she loves it she loves getting out there and being involved she's our administrator she runs the family she schedules stuff pays for stuff makes sure that we're operating in this field we all have our gifts within this passion and, and joy and that even kelly who didn't really like to play basketball didn't play basketball she can identify with that when we're driven by something we tend to to, uh, it tends to determine who our mentors are, who we like to follow, who our leaders are. And in our family, we have leaders in basketball. Kelly's dad played college basketball. Her brother was real good at basketball. We tend to put ourselves and watch and admire people who play it well, who coach it well. We go get trained by people who we think would make us better in that. When you're driven by something, you're passionate about something, it will cost you. We have basketball scars. K 
countless x-rays, MRIs. Personally, I've had five knee surgeries, all related to basketball. When you're driven by something, our identity becomes that of a basketball family. You can ask the people on our street. Oh yeah, the, the goings, they're down there with the, they're the ones with the basketball court. Usually somebody's out there all the time. You can ask the chambers. If, if they don't hear a ball dribbling during the day, what's wrong with the goings? Is everything okay? Are they out of town? What's going on? The other day I walked into Planet Fitness and one of my kids' teammates, just to make small talk with me, I guess was just trying to connect with me, say, they said, uh, 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 are your kids still playing basketball? Well, they know they are. I mean, just trying, that's, I mean, I'm in Belton away and that's how we are known. When you're driven by something, you tend to build certain disciplines. You have routines in your life to help you embrace more of what drives you. You protest those things that hinder you. You push away distortions of the game of basketball. You push away those things that are only going to distract you from accomplishing what you want to do. In our situation, my daughter, who I thought at one time was better at volleyball than basketball, she said, I don't like volleyball. It's just getting in the way of me playing more basketball. Same thing with my son. Gave up soccer and football. We as a family sometimes don't do lake days. We don't do gardens in the yard because we're usually playing basketball. We're doing something like that. We really made decisions when we were in Red River, New Mexico about how much skiing we'll do, how dangerous we'll go, how risky we'll be. Why? Because we don't want to get hurt because of why? We want to play basketball when we get back home. For us, basketball is bigger than just people, bad people who have corrupted the game and messed things up. My point is, in order for all of us as a family, we all know that basketball is just a vehicle that we are passionate about. But people do know us by that. That's just basketball. We view basketball like we view everything else. It's just a way, it's a vehicle for us to glorify God and engage people. How else will we bump into unchurched people? Being a pastor, I'm in this office, I'm in this building all the time. So a lot of what we use that game for is let's bump into other families. Let's get to know other people. Let's use the As long as God will allow us to enjoy it, let's use it. This is just one silly, drawn-out example of how a passion can dictate everything in your life. What defines you? What's your family known for? When we identify a gospel-driven family, a gospel-driven church, similar to what I just mentioned about basketball, we will see that the gifts and the identity of the people within that church community or in that family will begin to flourish in that drive of the gospel. Some people are administrators, some people are evangelists, some people are teachers, some people are prayers, some people like to serve. And you'll see this group family thrive in that way of a gospel-driven church. A gospel-driven community will affect the decisions that we make. We're not going to go do this. 
We're not going to see that. We're not going to watch that. That clouds our mind. That messes us up. That takes us away from the joy that we have in the Lord. So we're going to protest this. We're not going to do that. In fact, here's the way that I pray as a gospel-driven family for the future for my kids. As we're praying and considering universities, I'm thinking... I will allow you to go to a university if you can find a church in the area that you can belong to. It makes decisions different than just, I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to go do this. I want to go. Well, let's do that and let's look for a church that will support you there. A gospel driven community also will look for mentors, leaders, search for people that will help us grow and develop more of a love for Christ. A gospel community will also endure scars and wounds. Paul is writing from jail. He writes several times about the hardships that he's endured. In fact, we follow a Savior who went to the cross. A gospel community knows that we are driven for something bigger than us. That means we're going to get wounded. We're going to get harmed. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardships, but we're going to keep on going because we're driven not by the state of our body or our popularity. We're driven by what God did for us. If we're a gospel community, gospel-driven community, those closest to us will be able to say, They love the gospel. They love the gospel. We will find ourselves protesting things that we don't believe in. We will find ourselves unapologetically adjusting a lifestyle to to follow Christ instead of following the world. And we won't quit going to church because we read about some pastor that did something to someone. We're not man-centered. We're gospel-driven. We will not use personalities from others or behaviors from others as an excuse to stop loving the gospel. Does a passion for Jesus and the gospel drive you? Does it define you? The power of the gospel is taken over in Colossae. They proclaimed, in a way, this I believe in the power of the gospel, and they never were the same, and it impacted many. In verse 6, we see what this means, that, that, that it has come to you, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. Just as it is as among you since the day you heard it and, came to, and you came to truly appreciate God's grace. Do you appreciate God's grace? Do you truly appreciate God's grace? Eventually, the Colossians were being tempted to listen to other doctrines. 
They began to listen and consider other ideas that would begin to rob them of their joy and their authentic zeal and drive. They, their passion for the hope and the gospel started to wane. And they were beginning to forget the majesty and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is writing to them saying, I remember, I know who you were. I know what's been driving you. I know what you're famous for. You're famous for your faith. You're famous for your love. Don't be famous for forgetting it all. Losing it. So Paul writes to them this letter and he's saying, I want to encourage you. I want to remind you. Confess it again and again and again. This I believe in the power of the gospel. Paul's telling them, I know what's being told to you. I know that you're tempted to forget about it or get over it. Don't get over it. Truly appreciate the grace of God. This is considered Palm Sunday today. We call it that because on the Christian calendar, we celebrate the week before Resurrection Sunday as the day that Jesus rode on a donkey into the streets of Jerusalem. And they were singing his praises. I want to read the text to you in Matthew chapter 21, verse 6 through 10. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey in its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That is unashamed, unapologetic praise to the one they thought to be their Savior. They were caught up in the emotion. Every writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records that they are caught up, that the emotion was swelling. They, their hope was in this earthly king. They were honoring him and praising him. They adored him. And then within a week, they turned him over to be crucified. How easy it is to follow emotionalism, fads, crazes, events, programs, be caught up. Oh, did you hear what's going on at Grace? You talk about numbers and you talk about programs. Really? You know what I pray for every week? I pray that we would have a gospel-driven people here. I pray that we would be so in love with Jesus and so amazed that he died on a cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again three days later. I pray that we would have people in this church that never get over it. That even maybe the people next to you on the pew could say, really, you're that loud again in this song? Yeah, 
And I'm going to get louder and louder and louder as I get older and older and older because I feel more and more and more undeserving of the grace of God. So this means I pray against a man-centered church. I pray against any man-centered idea. I pray against measuring our commitment by our busy work or attendance. I pray against selfishness here or a me-centered living. I pray against a lifeless religion that just makes us feel like, okay, we went to church. I pray against that one day we can get so emotional on a Sunday and then within a week forsake our Savior. What if people from Flagstaff, Arizona sent an email this week and said, hey, people of Salado, we've heard about you. I can't believe what we're hearing. I mean, y'all are in the like the south end of the buckle of the Bible belt, but y'all are like crazy in love with your community. You're crazy in love with each other. Like, like y'all should be divided. I mean, I hear there's Methodists that come to your church and Baptists that come to your church. Yeah, Lutherans coming over to your church. You got people who didn't even like God coming to your church and y'all, y'all love each other. What's driving you? And may we be able to say, we really appreciate the, the God who's given us grace. That we can't get over it. That everybody that walks through these doors just feels what is the first and the third part of our name. That we are a church of grace. That I believe in a majestic Savior King that I believe in a God who really wants me. And I believe in the power of the gospel of Christ and it drives everything that we do. Heavenly Father, as we close our time today, as we begin this week of passion where we Consider what you've done for us. Oh God, please let us lay down all the other things, all the other identities, if they're in the way of being driven by the gospel. Let us forsake them because God, we don't want to be a stumbling block to people. We only want to use the gifts you've given us to, to engage others. Oh God, were we are man-centered, when we are program-centered, when we are selfish, when we are entertainment-driven, when we are event-driven, Lord, would you please reveal that to us in your grace so that we can come back with a pure heart and just over and over and over again sing in the victory of Christ. Let us never get over that you give us grace to be saved by faith.